Welcome to Working for Women, the independent women's forum podcast, where we are changing the conversation about women and public policy for the better. Hello, I'm Hadley Heath Manning, Director of Health Policy at the Independent Women's Forum. Today, I'm here with our very own Julie Gunlock, who's Director of the Culture of Alarmism Project at IWF. And we're going to be talking about some policy issues that are related to food. Julie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me today, Hadley. So, Julie, you recently wrote a policy brief for IWF um, about some policy developments related to food. And I love food. I love talking about food. Um, (laughs) I want to talk about all of the issues that you bring up in the brief, but um, first I want to make a confession. Right now, I'm drinking a Diet Coke. I love Diet Coke. It's my favorite. How dare you? The only thing thing that can make that worse, Hadley, is if you're eating an Oreo cookie with a Diet Coke, but um, you've you've only committed one sin. Yeah, I'm really not a sweets person. I like salty foods, but we'll get to the salty foods later. First, I, I want to know, because this is important to me, is someone trying to tax my Coke? What, what's up with the soda taxes? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And they're not just trying to tax them. In some areas, they're trying to ban them. Um, we all remember uh, Michael Bloom, Mayor Michael Bloomberg's, um, he, he was the mayor of New York City, his attempt to restrict the sizes of the sodas. Um, so these initiatives are happening all over the country. And the really frustrating thing about this is if you look at the actual data there have been studies done on the efficacy of soda taxes and soda restrictions. They don't work. I'm, this is conclusive. I mean, everybody sort of knows this, and yet uh, state officials, a lot of local officials, um, not, we're not seeing it so much on the federal level at this point, although there have been some eager congressmen trying to or talking about um, instituting some sort of across-the-board tax or ban. Um, however, most of these are being done at the state level and the city level. San Francisco uh, just instituted um, uh, some soda restrictions. And so um, what, the, what this does is it really lines the pocket of these lawmakers. They claim that these taxes, the revenues raised through these taxes, will go to obesity, um, sort of um, anti-obesity efforts. Uh, but we both know that, they, that it really goes to pay for other programs. Um, it goes to pay for other bloated programs. We don't see a lot from these anti-obesity um, programs, and, and frankly, it doesn't in any way reduce obesity. Um, there, there's absolutely no evidence that shows that these taxes or these other restrictions um, reduce obesity. So it is frustrating because, um, because, I mean, some people kind of shrug and go, oh, you know, what's a, what's a two-cent soda? But it does hurt people. I mean, ultimately, this stuff... Um, this stuff does ultimately add up and hurt people. And again, we need to ask ourselves, why are, why are we allowing elected officials to pursue policies that don't work? Yeah, you know, my daily routine is I will have usually one can of Diet Coke with my lunch. And then at night, I might have a Diet Coke with dinner. But I tell you, as soon as I run out of those cans of Diet Coke, I reach for a <laughs> beer. <laughs> because that's, well, that's the next fizzy drink in my refrigerator, right? That's funny that you say that. Because interestingly, there was a study done a couple years ago. Um, uh, they, they, the researchers uh, did sort of a, a, a study in a town. And what they did is um, they they increased the prices of sodas and wanted to see how the consumers in this small town would react. Um, well, the the, the uh, consumption of soda, in fact, did decrease. I think they put a significant tax on it, not just one cent. 
um, they put a little bit more um, per soda. And so the, the consumption of soda did, did decrease. Um, so, you know, most people say, hey, look, great, it worked. Um, but uh, th- what increased was the consumption of beer in that town. <laughs> um, so like you, um, there's this sort of replacement theory where people, if you tax one thing or limit one thing, They'll figure out another way to get those calories. They'll figure out another snack food. We're seeing this in the school lunch program. Look, kids are, kids are, um, there's now this sort of thriving black market of, of, uh, of salt and other condiments that are banned at school um, because uh, kids are going to figure out a way around it. Some kids starve themselves all day and then hightail it to the local fast food or the local gas station where they can pick up some Doritos and a soda. So, look, people figure whether it's soda bands or, you know, bands of other kind, um, people are smart. They're, they're cagey and they'll figure out how to get around it. Yeah. I, I want to talk more about the school lunch program. I went to public school and for all 12 grades, I ate public school lunch almost every single day. Uh, when I was in school, my local school system had a wonderful lady in charge who really had a good uh, understanding of nutrition, but she also invited a few of us students in during the summer to taste test some of the meals. I mean, we just had oh. this wonderful experience, but I look today at some of the pictures that students are posting of their school lunches on social media, and it looks nothing like the great experience I had. So maybe I was in an exceptional place, but I also understand no. there have been sort of some recent changes, right? Like since I... Yeah. I graduated high school 10 years ago. So what are the most recent changes and what do parents need to know about those? Yeah, well, I, I graduated uh, lo- uh, over t- 20 years ago. So my experience is most like yours. My mother packed my lunch every day, but there was the occasion, especially when I got in high school and I, I thought I knew better. Um, and so I started buying my own lunch and it was a lot better tasting and it seemed more well-balanced. Um, and then you tell this story about a decade ago, how you felt like, you know, it was, uh, it was locally made and the woman behind the, the, in the kitchen really cared about the food being prepared. The difference is not that these women don't care anymore, that there's, um, there's, you know, some like major change. The difference is, is that the feds have really, um, taken over the school lunch program much more than it was before. It, it has been a program all, it, it was, it was, um, sort of officially funded, it was, you know, it was created way back in the Depression as a way to give kids, uh, very, very poor families or poor children, at least one sort of balanced meal a day, um, one sort of calorie hit. Um, And then it was authorized in the 50s, and we've seen it steadily grow and increase in funding and just expand, the program has been expanding ever since. Um, But again, it was a program sort of designed to help help kids who lived at or under the poverty line. What's happened over the last decade, um, and probably since you've graduated from high school, um, there has been an increase increase in the federal control, meaning USDA has instituted more and more rules. So the local lady, the local woman, or I don't, you know, I want to be gender neutral here, or the local man um, behind, uh, you know, working on the school lunches, he has fewer and fewer tools um, at his disposal or her disposal to make the food taste good. So I'll give you an example. Um, Michelle Obama shepherded through major reforms to the school lunch program in 2010. And among the reforms were, you know, and we know all this, right? This is going to sound familiar to you because it was all over the news. Oh, more leafy greens, more brown rice and whole grains and, you know, leaner meats and um, just healthier food for kids, right? Well, what they didn't talk about was you're no longer allowed to put butter or salt. 
you're no longer allowed to use butter and you're no longer allowed to use salt. Now, there have been some revisions to it, so they have some congressmen. I mean, it was so outrageous the first couple of years of these 2010 reforms. I mean, the kids just absolutely were not eating the food. So in subsequent years, some congressmen have loosened up so, those requirements so that um, th- there can be a few more flavorings used on the school. But basically, kids were being given brown, bro- uh, boiled brown rice, broccoli with and, and corn and green beans with absolutely nothing on them. You know, these sort of, um, you know, gross protein meal or, you know, the protein on the tray certainly wasn't, you know, didn't have gravy, didn't have any kind of seasoning on it. I mean, if you've ever, I, I'm, a, I'm a home cook. If you ever cooked a chicken breast in a pan with no salt and pepper on it, it comes out tasting pretty disgusting and like pretty dull. And I mean, kids aren't dumb. Like they have taste buds. They know that when something tastes good. And so again, you have these local school lunch officials who aren't able, I mean, you ask any cook, what are the fundamentals of cooking? Using salt and pepper and using, um, using you know, occasionally, you know, you ask any mom, how do you get her to the kids to eat the broccoli? I mean, a lot of times I put a little Parmesan cheese, I put butter, I put salt. Sometimes I'll put a, a slice of American cheese. I mean, these are, the, these are the ways in which, you know, you sort of introduce these things. And, and a lot of kids really do like flavorings. I know this is probably a, a, a crazy concept to, to people in the White House, but people like food that tastes good. And so, again... Um, the feds and, and the USDA is really tied to the hands of these local officials, so it's impossible to make the food taste good. Now, the result of this has been massive, massive school wa- uh, food waste at schools. Um, mm. The GAO is now, now saying that it's something like $4 million a day of food is thrown directly into the garbage can. I mean, it is so bad that in L.A. County, um, uh, some homeless shelters have, have um, come up with partnerships with local schools so that the food can go right to the um, right to the homeless shelter. Now, that's great. At least it's feeding someone. But I mean, someone should step back. People should step back and go, wait a minute. This is a school lunch program designed for kids and it's feeding homeless people in L.A. County. Yeah, what a bad idea. Also, I just can't think of anything more personal than what you put in your mouth. You know, like this, this is a very personal decision. And, w- yeah. and every kid is different. Every person's different. Every family's different. But I remember when I was in high school, I would eat school lunch. And then in the afternoon in North Carolina, you know, I'm from the South. When you mentioned yeah. that they can't use butter, I was like, oh, my gosh, I started like to panic. <laughs> like my heart rate increased. Like you can't use butter. I don't know what I would do. But after school, I would run on the track team. And in North yep. Carolina during track season – which is spring, uh, it can reach like 100 degrees in the afternoon. Yeah. So I would sweat profusely. And I'm kind of like a sweaty person to begin with. Like I just have very active sweat glands. But for that reason, I need salt. You know, I need salt right. in my diet. And I might need right. a different level of salt than the next kid, you know. But right. from what I understand, the FDA doesn't love salt. And they don't love the idea of Americans, you know, having multiple sizes, multiple uh, levels of salt in their diet, but sort of this one-size-fits-all idea when it comes to salt consumption. Can you tell me more about that? Like, why doesn't the FDA just sort of leave that to individuals? It's really fascinating when you start to look at these issues, and I've written about um, how the FDA's sort of action on these issues for quite a long time, and, and particularly with regards to nutrition. FDA has been behind the times um, with nutrition for decades, and, um, you know, we've seen this with the, um, and, and also the USDA. The USDA issues the dietary guidelines for years and years and years. We were going by the food pyramid, which is telling you load up on carbs and limit healthy fats and proteins. Um, now, all, all you have to do is look at the craze of the paleo movement and some of these other uh, sort of diet crazes to know that people are starting to understand that that was bad advice. 
Um, the government is finally coming around on that. But again, um, it took decades, and people were eating terrible, terrible diets that were was not based in any way on medical science and on the latest nutrition information. It was based on, um, you know, just antiquated information. The government is very slow to turn this stuff around, and we're seeing the same behavior when it comes to regulating certain ingredients. Um, the FDA has been sort of uh, whispering for years that they're going to limit uh, the amount of salt, sodium, that food manufacturers can put in their uh, in their products. So think of a bag of chips, right? It has a bag of chips has unless it's low salt, has a lot of um, has a lot of salt in it. Crackers, even bread, and also you know salt is added as a flavoring. So um, things that you might not even think have salt um, do have salt in them because salt is is again a flavoring. Um, and, and sugar as well. So the FDA is starting to get really antsy about this. They have said that the American diet um, or that Americans consume far too much salt on a daily basis. Um, but in fact, uh, uh, the latest studies are starting to really put into question um, the relationship between cardiovascular disease and salt consumption. Um, and doctors are pretty much saying, look, and I mean, there actually is some, the latest studies are actually saying the FDA recommendations to decrease our salt consumption can actually be dangerous. Um, doctors are generally saying, look, the smart thing to do is go to your diet, go to your doctor, talk to them, um, and have them give you advice on what your sodium consumption should be uh, per day. Um, and the, the government really is getting into some dangerous ground here when it's setting standards. More importantly, when it's actually telling food manufacturers and restaurants how to do their business. I mean, this is, this is, like, this is so bizarre to me that the government might actually tell, let's say, General Mills um, that their recipes need to be tweaked. I mean, this is insane, and so, and, and this is an insane intrusion into government, and the, the really fr- of government. And what the really frustrating thing is, take a stroll down the chip aisle. You, if you take a walk down the chip aisle, that is the only evidence you will ever need that this is unnecessary. And you know why? Because there is there is low salt, there is no salt, there is full salt, um, and there is, and, and not only just salt, there are no sugar, you know, reduced sugar, low fat, no fat. I mean. Consumers have so many choices now in the marketplace that it really baffles me, and I think it doesn't just baffle sort of people who appreciate sort of the, the, uh, a free market and, and really you know believe in a limited government. I think it baffles anyone with an ounce of common sense that the government would in any way be involved in this kind of stuff. The market, the food manufacturers are more than happy to to sort of listen to what consumers are asking for, and they they more often than not they supply that demand. And so, um, so this is really frustrating. I think it's frustrating from sort of a free uh, free market standpoint. But it, but again, uh, as I write in the paper, we now have some evidence that this FDA move could actually be dangerous, and that's really important. I think when we talk about alarmism and we talk about these topics, to point out that it's not just an intrusion into our private lives, but it could potentially be harmful. Yeah, I mean, I thought maybe it was just me because I live. You may know this. I live in Denver, Colorado, yep. which is a city that's known for being crazy healthy. I mean, people are very yeah. much into the health crazes here. And when I go to the grocery store and walk down the aisle, not just the chip aisle, but throughout my produce section, I mean, there's organic, there's local, there's super fresh, there's toxin-free, there's stuff yeah. that's not genetically modified and they say so, you know, there's right. things that are gluten-free, fat-free, sugar-free, and so forth. So I feel like there's a ton of options. But then I wonder... Am I just privileged because I live in this area? I live in a nice neighborhood in Denver. Is there healthy food available for people who maybe don't live in Denver or don't live right next to Trader Joe's? I mean, sure. I feel like 
I'm privileged to live in this area, but then I don't take advantage of my privilege because I don't buy the organic produce because sure. it's so expensive. But at least I feel like the option's there. So is the market really solving this problem for everyone it, or is it just it, a few? It absolutely is. I can say it without a doubt that the market is really is really responding to consumer demand. And the best thing is is that the freer the market, the more available these things are to people and people who, who may not be able to afford it. I mean, when you think about all of the canned and frozen foods that are out there. So I think it's really important, and this is what really frustrates me about what I call sort of food Nazis um, and those people who, who make you feel bad for buying the less expensive thing. I mean, it is incredibly disturbing to me to see some of the messages out there for moms who are told that they have to buy expensive organic food, organic milk, organic meat, in order to provide their children healthy food. Look, there's absolutely zero, there's, there's zero nutritional difference between organic, between conventionally grown, between um, organic and GMO food. And there's absolutely zero nutritional difference. And so to, to suggest to women that they're harming their children by going with the more affordable produce, and let's, let's be clear, or organic food is much more expensive. Organic milk is much more expensive. Organic meat is much more expensive. And so, and also other, other sort of niche areas like grass fed meat and lime caught fish. These things are much more expensive. And so I think women should be told the truth, which is, um, that the affordable stuff in the grocery store is, is perfectly fine. And the thing that really also frustrates me is that those same people who guilt you about not buying organic will also tell you that fresh vegetables are the only way to go. There's a recent study that just came out, actually, I just saw it yesterday, um, that really debunks the myth that you lose some nutritional quality when you freeze food. In fact, some frozen foods can actually be more nutritious because they're picked. When you, when you bring things to the marketplace, I mean, and I, I don't want to say that fresh food isn't healthy. It's all healthy. Um, but, it, but when you allow, when you know, when a grower knows that the green beans that he's, go, or whatever, is going to be frozen, you let those things often come to the height of ripeness, which is when they have the most nutrients and vitamins. And so some frozen vegetables are actually more healthy. Again, I'm not saying, okay, stop buying fresh food. I'm just saying there's no reason to tell women that's really inexpensive. I mean, I got, yesterday I got an entire pound of peas in the grocery store, already shelled, already cleaned for 99 cents. How do I wow. eat that? My kids love peas. They gobble them up. I put them in mac and cheese. I put them on the side of their plate. They eat them alone. They love them, and I don't even have to put butter on them. And so to tell women, no, 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 you must buy fresh peas, and you must shell them yourselves, and you must get them at a farmer's market, or better yet, if you pick them yourself. I mean, this constant drumbeat that you're not doing enough and that you have to spend more and do more and grow it yourself is really exhausted, exhausting. And it's particularly exhausting in an era where women are working more, women are away from the home more. So essentially, a lot of these sort of mommy bloggers and these food snobs are telling moms, you're not doing enough. It's not enough that you're working outside the home and trying to provide for your family. You now need to grow an entire garden. You need to, you know, you need to pick yeah. this, these vegetables. And that's exhausting for women. So I think the most important thing when it comes to choices, and as you say, is allowing choices. Uh, if you want to buy organic, God bless. If you, want to buy, um, if you want to buy the things that are affordable in the grocery store, you shouldn't be told you're harming your children. Yeah, and then, uh, you know, the message for... People like me, I'm a married young woman, but I don't have children. The message kind of is you'll never be able to do enough. You know, if you decide yeah. to become a mom, that that's probably not a choice you want to make because you'll never be able to shell enough peas. <laughs> you know, you'll yes, never be exactly. able to, 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 to buy the most organic, most pure 
foods for these, you know, precious little babies that we have to hover right. over like, like helicopter parents. But um, <laughs> you, you mentioned some of the, the different ways that food is grown from organic to genetically modified. And one of the things that you talk about in your policy focus, Julie, is about rules and regulations that apply to farming and agriculture. Can you discuss some of those and just tell us about, you know, because ultimately the farm is where food comes from. So sure. what, what are some policy changes that are affecting that level of production? Well, there's a, there's a few things. I think there are, there are definitely are some policy cha- things that are, are happening. Uh, again, much like the soda uh, restrictions, we're seeing a lot of calls um, to ban or restrict the use of biotechnology. That is genetically modified seeds. Um, these seeds are, are their, their genetics are tinkered with just a little bit so that they, for instance, are drought resistant, drought resistant, or um, they are, uh, they contain a, an herbicide so the bugs don't eat them, or I'm sorry, a pesticide so that the bugs actually, if they, if they chomp on the, the corn, the bug dies. And so that, that, um, that is a way to, to reduce the use of agrochemicals on, uh, on the crops and allows for a higher yield. Um, GMOs also, um, you know, it, it's it's always interesting to me when I when I focus on this issue because um, it's such a it's such a, a, a wonderful solution. Um, agriculture takes a lot of land, and many people are worried about using the land for agriculture and want to uh, maintain the, the you know free space for animals and 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 also for pleasure. And so, but agriculture does. I mean, all you have to do is drive through the state of Illinois, and you, you'll see that that agriculture takes a lot of land, but when we are able to uh, modify these seeds, um, it gives farmers a greater yield on a smaller piece of land. So again, um, this is a way to decrease the need for land and to decrease the need for chemicals used on the land to get those crops to grow. Um, so for me, it's both an environmental issue and it's also um, it, it's it, it's just a, a sort of a clean earth issue. Um, lastly, you know, ge- genetically modified seeds are used in Africa and areas um, of Asia uh, and India where people are very, very poor, and they're be- these seeds are being introduced and again increasing yields and really helping poor area poor areas. Um, a lot of farm work in these countries is done by women and it's done manually. Um, so again, these seeds, um, you know, really these modified seeds really do help. I think particularly women. So I see it as a women's issue as well. Um, there are restrictions afoot um, in, in the state and local areas to limit GMO seeds, which would hurt the biotech industry writ large and 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 eventually really harm some of these countries that are using them. Um, it's a very disturbing issue. I think farmers, like consumers, like all consumers, deserve uh, to be allowed to make choices that are best for them and for their businesses. Um, you know, we, we I, see, I see a lot of uh, farmers being vilified out there. Um, you know, companies like Chipotle and Panera and others saying, "Oh, you know, uh, you know, we're we're a nice company that deals with with little farm." I mean, over ninety percent of of uh, corporate they call corporate farm big farms are are family owned. Um, so I think there's a lot of disparaging messages out there about farmers. It very much concerns me. And again, I think some of this negative information could really harm the biotech industry, which is an important tool that farmers use um, on their own crops. What are people afraid of, Julie? I mean, with genetically modified, is it just the name that scares people? Do they think yeah. that it's going to cause them some kind of, 
you know, health problems or yeah, what's the, what's the fear mongering message on this? Because I really, from all that you're saying, it sounds like common sense to use these seeds that produce higher yields and what could be more sensical than helping people avoid hunger, you know, but I guess <laughs> there's some, some fear related to it for some reason. Yeah. It's really a strange, to be honest with you, I don't, I mean, boy, there, the, the people who are against this technology are really tough to figure out, but I think a lot of it has to do with, um, they, it's almost like, they view it as a sci-fi novel that we're somehow meddling with science and nature and this will somehow harm us. And then they claim that eating genetically modified ingredients somehow will harm you. Well, you eat things with DNA all the time. You, I mean, a banana has DNA. You're eating a banana. It doesn't like you don't turn into a banana. Like you, I mean, <laughs> it's the same. I don't understand. They, they seem to feel like if they're eating a product with GMO corn, that their body will somehow be harmed by that. But you're, 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 if you eat non-GMO corn, you're still eating DNA, you're still eating corn DNA. So it's, uh, the modification is very, it's actually quite minor. And what people need to understand is, you know, there was no such thing as sweet corn, like we're going to eat this holiday season, you know, when, you know, several hundred years ago. I mean, it was modified. It was we 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 have always modified vegetables through generally traditional breeding. GMOs it just speeds up the process, and frankly, it's a lot more accurate. You don't get all these kind of wild offshoots that you would get with traditional breeding. You know that you have to do over and over again, generations and generations, until you sort of get what you want. Um, GMO technology is just speeding this up. So look, it's a, it's it's there's a lot of, there are a lot of people out there who are afraid. Uh, for because they don't understand the technology and really how unscary it is. Um, there are some religious people that uh, that that, for, that object for religious reasons. I've heard people say that uh, they don't think we should mess with God's design. Um, and so there's there's a variety of reasons uh, that people are afraid of GMOs. But again, the more uh, you educate yourself about GMOs, I was really baffled by the process, to be honest with you, and by the technology. The more you educate yourself the far less scarier it becomes. And you start to see the great benefits, and again, particularly to those um, that are really suffering in this world. So I think the potential is there. Again, it's a tool. It's not going, you know, it's not the panacea. It's not going to cure all the world's ills. Uh, But I don't think we should be taking away tools from people, particularly people who are trying to help um, those who are suffering. Yeah. So back to my first world experience, one tool that I like to use when I'm hungry and I'm on a road trip (laughs) is pulling into a fast food restaurant for a little bit of fast food. But fast food is another target for the food Nazis, right? The food Nazis and the food nannies, they hate fast food. They hate the fast food industry. Uh, And in your policy brief, you talk about their latest attempt to rid the world of fast food. And this is now, what, prohibiting fast food establishments from creating new locations? Yeah, it's unbelievable. This is a fantastic story um, that really shows un- the sort of effect of un- the unintended consequences of these. It's good for you policies that a lot of these lefty, uh, you know, um, state and city officials uh, put forth. Um, uh, in, in South Los Angeles, the South, uh, the city of South Los Angeles, their city council decided several years ago. I think it was three, three or four years ago to pass an ordinance that said there shall be no construction of fast food restaurants uh, within these, this, this city area. And so um, there was no construction of fast food restaurants. 
Well, just recently, a couple months ago, um, they started to look at the data to see if this had and, – and again, you know, this was, of course, these, these city officials said this is all because we're going to reduce obesity because it's all fast food's problem. I mean, it's so hard to keep track of this because one minute it's soda, the next minute it's fast food, the next minute it's commercials on television, the next minute it's school lunches. I mean, I can't keep it tra- straight, but apparently the city of South Los Angeles decided to blame it on – at least for this week, they decided to blame it on fast food. So they passed an ordinance, you know, it was, oh, they're so brave, you know, no fast food construction, and everyone's going to be skinny and start taking up running. Uh, well, three years later, they looked at the data, and two things, two things had gone up in the time um, that the ordinance had been put in place. Uh, obesity, obesity increased and unemployment increased. Mm-hmm. Um, so... <laughs> So all this city did was take away the fast food from the people and annoy them, probably. Um, it, it did not result in people eating less healthy food. They just found unhealthy food somewhere else. Um, and but, it, but this is the really essential part. It, it, it robbed this – is, this is a, a, a fairly poor community. Um, this is, this is a, a very, you know, sort of underprivileged community. And, and you think about low-skilled workers or teenagers, you know, who need – I mean, I worked in fast food when I was, I was a low-skilled worker. I needed, I needed some experience, and so I started off working at the Hardee's, which I think today is called Roy Rogers, but I worked at Hardee's. And, um, and so it robbed these people in this underprivileged area of job opportunities. Um, fast food is a great place for teenagers and young adults and even, you know, working moms and others to get experience. And, and, and this can lead to management positions and other things, and they can leave their job with that experience and get another job. But the point is is that, um, that it really hurt these people. And look, the best way to fight obesity is to give people opportunities to take care of themselves. And, and so this, again, this is a, it's good for you. We're looking out for you. Patronizing kind of city uh, ordinance that did nothing to increase uh, people's health or to improve their health. Um, and it actually made their lives quite, you know, quite a lot worse. Wow. Well, Julie, that's so helpful to learn about sort of the secondary and tertiary effects of some of these policies. I think there's a trend in public policy where the do-gooders focus on their intentions. And of course, the intention of reducing obesity rates is good, but the real world effects are often quite different. So, um, Julie, with that, I know you've written a lot about these issues for the Independent Women's Forum, and our website is iwf.org. I want to encourage our listeners to go there and read more if they're interested. And Julie, I want to give you the opportunity, if you have any other resources you'd like to recommend, um, and also tell folks about your book um, and where folks can find a copy of it. Thanks, Hadley. Yeah, I've written on these subjects um, for a, a long time, and there's um, there's a lot of other good resources out there. Um, the, the Competitive Enterprise Institute does a lot of good work on these sort of um, you know, unintended consequences of these government policies. The Heritage Foundation also does quite a bit um, of good work. Um, But again, IWF covers all of these topics. And I did write a book a couple years ago called From Cupcakes to Chemicals, How the Culture of Alarmism Makes Us Afraid of Everything and How to Fight Back, uh, where I did uh, look at several of these policies, these good-for-you policies, um, and, and, and looked at the, the results of them. Um, and, uh, you know, not surprisingly, um, uh, you know, they, they didn't go quite as well as the policymakers had hoped. Um, so there's a lot more information in that book, and that's available on Amazon. So thanks so much, Hadley, for having me on. Yes, thank you, Julie, for being our guest today. Uh, personally, I just have to say, whenever I talk to Julie about these issues, I feel a great deal of relief. I just feel like the world is not as scary as I thought it was and that the decisions I'm making about eating affordable foods that taste good, that 
you know, make nutritional sense and moderation that that's all okay. It's not as scary as it has to be. So thanks, Julie, for relieving some of my fears and relieving some of our alarmism. And uh, for those of you who've listened to this edition of the IWF Working for Women podcast, I thank you for your time. See you next time. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give it a thumbs up, share it on social media, or stop by iwf.org for similar content.